Praise the Lord. Good morning. Uh, turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Second Chronicles seven fourteen, and um, I think a lot of you will be familiar with this verse. And um, I hope this morning that the Holy Spirit will shed. Um, I won't say new light on it. I'll say I hope the Holy Spirit sheds more light on this particular scripture. How many remember during the days of nine eleven? In fact, there are a lot of young people that don't really remember the day. It's kind of an historic history lesson, right? Some that were, uh, I'll remind you, that was uh, 19 years ago. I know it seems pretty fresh in a lot of our minds what happened on 9-11. But this scripture was the scripture that was most often quoted during that period of time. If my people were called by my name, scripture, I'm going to read it here in a second. And uh, we were all quoting that scripture, and we were all pressing into the Lord. And uh, and uh, this scripture um, was a prayer uh, that we all got on our knees and began to humble ourselves before God. And so this morning, I'm just praying that God, as we read this scripture, will once again emblazon this scripture in our minds and in our hearts. So let's turn to Second Chronicles 7.14. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we humbly pray today, Lord God, that you would help us. Lord, we need your guidance. We need your help. Lord, the situations that are around us are beyond our strength, our intelligence, and our power, Lord God. We need the hand of Almighty God to change, Lord, our nation, to change our communities, Lord God, and more than anything, Lord, to change each and every one of us, Lord. So I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would take this text You'd bring it alive, that you would give it revelation, you would give it light, you would give it power, you'd give it truth to every heart, Lord God. And we ask all these things in your name, Lord Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. As we look at this passage, uh, we want to look at it in the correct context. Um, as we go in the book of Chronicles, uh, we start off in First Chronicles. In First Chronicles, these are like history books, First and Second Chronicles. So First Chronicles kind of gives a genealogy of the nation of Israel from the beginning of the nation up till the current time in history, uh, past the the king, the, the monarchies, the kings of Israel, of Israel and Judah. And so it begins by giving the history of Saul and David. So in 1 Chronicles, we largely have a history of the the kingship of Saul and David. 2 Chronicles begins the third king, which is Solomon. And Solomon had a call from God from his father David, and that call was to build a house for the Lord. Build a house that would uh, have God's presence and would have his name on it. Capital N every time you see it. God said, I'll put my name on that house, and I actually will come down and I'll be present in that house. 
And this becomes very important in this context because at the dedication of this tabernacle, in fact, you see back one chapter in verse 6, you see Solomon's prayer at, at the dedication of this temple. And uh, they call it Solomon's uh, temple, but actually David was the one that had the call from God to build it. And Solomon is actually fulfilling the call that David had to build the temple. And so Solomon has it built. David largely gave his fortune to build a house for the presence of the Lord, a place that would have his name on it. And um, here's Solomon at the dedication. And Solomon says in verse 14, he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or in earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled, fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, shall never fail to have a man sit before the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do and walk according to my law, as you have done. And now, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. But listen to this. He says, but will you really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much this temple that I have built, yet give attention to your servant's prayer and plea for mercy. You see that God is actually, Solomon is just, it's so amazing to him that God would dwell in this glorious temple that he just built, and he's actually kind of shocked with it. And he says, will you really dwell in this house that we have built? How is that possible? Even the entire heavens can't contain you. And he builds this temple, and uh, God actually, in Second Chronicles 7.14, he's actually um, answering the prayer that Solomon had given earlier. He's actually telling him, with the if and the then, he's saying, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And how many know that the temple that Solomon built was glorious? I mean, David's fortune was spent to build it. It was beautiful. Uh, Maybe there's not another building in the history of the world that costs more money to build than David's temple. I mean, he used, like I said, his vast fortune. He was probably the wealthiest man in the world. Solomon surely was at the time. Um, and he spent, David spent most of his fortune to build that house. And it was glorious and it was full of splendor and glory. And, and, um, the New Testament, we begin to see that that temple is actually us. How many know that? When, when Solomon wonders that God will dwell on earth with men, The Bible says that Jesus put on flesh and dwelt with men, and then he gave his Holy Spirit to dwell in men. I mean, no, that's true. And so God is calling his people. He says, if my people who are called by my name, 
will pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and I will begin to heal their land. And God gives this promise at the dedication of the temple. The dedication of the building that was going to house his spirit and the building that was going to house his name. And they were going to look at that and they were going to know his spirit and they were going to know his name. And at that dedication, God gives this amazing principle. And the title of my message is Revival Praying. Revival Praying, because I look around at the um, conditions of the world around us, and I wonder to myself, what's God calling me to do? What's God calling us first, right? Individuals. Then what's God calling this church to do? And what's God calling this nation to do? And I began to realize among myself that I am helpless without God. That I am hopeless without God. That there is a feeling of despair without God. And, and I think about my intellect. And some of you maybe don't think the same way, but I realize really quickly that my intellect doesn't amount to very much. My thinking, my scheming, my planning, my processing, my intelligence, my all these things that we depend on can't help with what's going on right now in our country. You say, well, Chad, you just haven't planned the right way. You know, you can, you can actually go out in your own intelligence and you can post something and it's going to change America. You can argue with somebody and it's going to change America. You can do all kinds of things and you're going to change the course of this nation that's going in the wrong direction. And I'm here to tell you that there's nothing I can do without this promise that's going to change this nation one bit. There's not anything that I can do that can change my family one bit. There's not anything that I can do individually to change my own heart one bit. How many know that's true? We need the promise of this passage to be real in our individual lives in order for our families to change, our community to change, and our nation to change. And as we begin to look at this, I was uh, reading a story from Dwight Moody. I want you to listen to this story. It's very fascinating. Remember, the title of my message is Revival Praying. It says he wasn't planning to do any preaching. This is Dwight Moody. He was on a sabbatical, but he met a preacher while he was on vacation on a sabbatical. I want you to imagine Dwight Moody spends his whole life preaching finds himself on vacation, and he said, you know what, I don't want anything to do with that. I want to relax. It says, Mr. Moody, this this ministry ran into. It said, you are very well known. Would you please come and speak at our church? I want you to think about it. He's resting. He's on sabbatical, saying, Lord, I know you want me to rest. But another preacher came up and said, you're very well known. Will you come speak at our church? That afternoon, Moody wrote in his journal that there were the, that was the deadest crowd he had ever seen. How many have ever stood in front of people and felt deadness? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's painful. It's very painful when you see, when you're a minister and you see people 
waiting to go to lunch and you know they're not interested and you know they're not into the Word of God, you know they're not, they have no interest whatsoever, and you just feel the deadness. <clears throat> and this is what he felt. It's the deadest crowd he had ever seen, and the only thing worse than preaching to those people was the fact that he had promised to go back that night and preach again. But he went back that night, and about halfway through the sermon, something happened. The people started to come to life. He felt compelled to ask if anyone would like to become a Christian, and a lot of people stood up. He didn't know what to do. So he said, maybe you don't understand what I'm asking you to do. So when we're dismissed, if you want to become a Christian, come over to this little room and meet with me. When the service was over, he went to the room and it was packed. Moody said to the minister, what does this all mean? He said, I don't know, but I think you need to preach again tomorrow night. So the next day, Moody got on a train and went to Ireland to continue his vacation. But when he got off the train, there was a memo that said, please come back, revival has broken out. So Moody got back on the train, went back to that church and preached for 10 straight nights, and over 400 people responded with salvation. Moody could not understand. Those people were as dead as they could be, and something changed it. What happened was that an 80-some-year-old invalid widow named Mary Ann had read one of his sermons in the newspaper and had started praying every day that God would bring D.L. Moody to her church. Can you imagine a church that is that dead, that ridiculously dead, has no life in it, an 80-year-old woman who was crippled and could not walk, prayed every day because she read about his revival in the paper, prayed every day that God would bring revival to that church and bring D.L. Moody to that church. Church, that's revival praying. And as I began to look at our nation, many people who don't study history don't realize that our nation has been the recipient of revivals right at the moment when it was at the darkest hour. When we needed it the most, when we were in our most dire situations, when the conditions were the worst, just in the nick of time, God would send revival and would change the nation. And church, we need such a revival. Now, some of you remember the revival in Brownsville in the 90s and how alive the church was during that revival. How many remember that? How many remember how alive churches were because of that one revival that swept across our nation? And when you look at the uh, one of the first great revivals, in fact, as we celebrate our Declaration of Independence, a lot of people don't realize that that whole push for independence, that whole fire that was in the bosom of the early uh, founding fathers really was a product of a revival. I mean, know that. There were colonies, and the colonies didn't really always get along, and the colonies um, were beginning to get cold um, in their relationship with God. And, and if you don't know your history, you don't realize this. The first groups of people that came were very mixed. There were some that were here because of religious persecution. They had actually been uh, removed from Britain. They couldn't worship in the way they would have liked. And so they lived in the Dutch colonies. 
kind of got separated from their English heritage, and then their English heritage didn't mean as much anymore, so then they began to arrive on our shores because they wanted freedom of religion to worship God in the way that they felt like was biblical. And so many of the colonies were started by those groups. Uh, Some colonies were uh, established by Spanish conquistadors. And they were here for one thing and one thing only, and that was money. They were here for gold. They were here for silver. There were others that were traders that were uh, colonies that were established here. And there were lots of different reasons why people were here. And after about a 100 years of these colonies, the conditions in the colonies was very bad. And a lot of people um, should study the history to understand what was going on in these colonies. Listen to this. This is the condition by Edwin Orr, the condition of society before the Great Awakening. Not many people realize that in the wake of the American Revolution, there was a moral slump. Drunkenness was an epidemic in the colonies. Out of a population of 5 million, 300,000 were confirmed alcoholics, drunkards. Think about that. We have a drug problem, right? They had a serious drug problem. How many of you know alcoholism is a serious drug problem? Number one drug problem in the world, in case you haven't noticed, has always been alcohol. 300,000 out of the 5 million were alcoholics. They were burying 15,000 people because of alcohol every year. Profanity was the most shocking, uh, of the most shocking kind was practiced everywhere in the colonies. For the first time in history, in the history of the American settlement, women were actually afraid to go out at night because they were afraid of being assaulted. Bank robberies were a daily occurrence. What about the churches? It says the Methodists were losing more members than they gained. The Baptists had their worst season of loss. The Presbyterians deplored the nation's ungodliness. Typical congregational church uh, said they hadn't added a single member in 16 years. They list a minister here of a big uh, town that said he hadn't added a member in 16 years. Um, And they had taken no one, not a single young person, into the fellowship. The Lutherans were languishing that they had discussed uniting with Episcopalians who were even worse off than they were. The Protestant uh, Bishop of New York quit functioning and went to a normal job because he was such a failure. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia uh, that the church was too far gone to even be redeemed. Voltaire and Thomas Paine both echoed that in their writings when they said Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. I mean, I think that that sounds like a pretty dire situation for the church. And the church sounds like it's struggling. The church sounds like it's losing. The world seems like it's winning. Um, listen to this. This is the colleges. Now remember, when you hear Harvard, you're going to say, well, yeah, we all knew Harvard was an atheistic organization. But let's remember back when it was founded, uh, nearly 55% of the graduates of Harvard became ministers. And Harvard was established to send out people to preach the gospel. And all of the universities were sent out to preach the gospel. And many of them were established um, within a hundred years of this being written. It says, the colleges at the time, a poll was taken at Harvard and discovered not one believer in the entire student body. 
They took a poll at Princeton, which was much more evangelical, and they discovered only two believers in the student body. Only five that did not belong to the filthy speech movement. There was actually a movement to, to, to speak, um, to curse. And so it was, the young people were all cursing, and they were all kind of throwing it up in the old guard's face, which was the kind of what they considered the old guard. And so the new way was to, to, to speak filthy. Alcohol was everywhere. There wasn't hardly a student in their body that was a Christian. Um, at Williams College, they held a mock communion, mocking communion. Uh, they put on anti-Christian plays at Dartmouth. They burned down the Nassau Hall at Princeton. They forced the resignation of the president of Harvard. They took a Bible out of the local Presbyterian church in New Jersey and burned it in a public bonfire. Christians were so few on campus during this time, they actually met in secret. How many think they need a revival? You say, well, man, why are you speaking so negative about their young culture at the time? Because I see shades of our culture. And you say, well, what was spreading through the young people before the Great Awakening that was causing them to abandon, abandon Christianity? And it was uh, the Enlightenment. There was a rational um, spirit um, where everything could be explained rationally and nothing could be explained by the Bible, and this was spreading across the world, the Enlightenment. And so young kids began to abandon the Bible, and they began to have these Enlightenment ideals that was spreading across the world. And guess what, church? We needed a revival. We badly needed a revival. And the churches were still struggling uh, because they were still under the control of the British government, which meant they were under the control of the Church of England and the Anglican Church. And these people desperately wanted a revival. They desperately wanted to shake the bands of control over them. And you begin to see people like the Wesley brothers. The Wesley brothers from Britain and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And, and it said that Jonathan Edwards would constantly fast. And can I tell you something? These all, all of these ministers of the Great Awakening had different backgrounds. Theologically, they were so different, they didn't even really get along. Okay? But they all agreed on one thing. We need revival. Only God can supernaturally change this nation. Only God can supernaturally uh, do a work in our nation and change the course of where our nation is going at this moment. And so people like Jonathan Edwards, it says that he would constantly fast for revival. They would listen to him pray, and they would constantly hear him say, God, give me New England. Give me New England. Give me New England. And constantly he prayed. Revival praying is what I'm talking about. The same thing that this woman who was crippled in her bed at 80 year old recognized in her dead church is the same thing Jonathan Edwards uh, recognized in the colleges and the towns um, in, in New England. And the Wesley brothers, their prayer was different. Their prayer was, Lord, give us revival. Lord, give us the fires of revival. George Whitfield began to pray for the fires of revival. And church, can I tell you, their backgrounds were all different. They, were, they weren't perfect people, but they were crying out to God, please change, Lord God, this nation. And out of the fires of the great awakening, 
And church, I don't know if you realize how great this revival was, but this revival shut down taverns. People that were in the taverns, people who were drunks, they were getting saved by the thousands. Benjamin Franklin was shocked when he seen large theaters filled with people trying to hear the gospel. And the Holy Spirit did a work in our nation through the Great Awakening, and it changed the course of our nation. How many know that's true? How many have known this stuff? You say, well, I thought they were all Puritans and everything was right, and we just kind of got away from that. No, in their period of time, they're like the nation of Israel. How many have ever seen the revivals in Israel? Do you know by the time King Josiah came to the throne, they hadn't even read the Word of God for so long they had to go find it? How many know during the period of the judges, they would turn their attention to God, God would deliver them, and they'd gradually fall right back. How many know that during the, the uh, book of Amos, they were so backslidden that God said that the day is coming, I'm going to restore the house of David. How many know that revival is an essential part of our nation? When you're a pastor and you're preaching the gospel and you're looking out and you're seeing deadness, church, you know what it's like to look out and see dryness and deadness and disinterest and people that want nothing to do with the gospel? You know good and well. How many have ever had a child? You said, hey, do this. And as soon as they walk away, you know that they didn't hear a word you just said and they're going to go do the other. And church, that's what it's like when you're preaching the gospel and the Spirit of God is not moving. You know that God's calling us to do great things, mighty things, things we've never dreamed of. But unless the Holy Spirit does a work, we're going to continue to see deadness in our pews because it's a work of the Holy Spirit. There's no level of uh, intelligence. There's no level of strategy. There's no level of human wisdom. There's nothing that can change a culture when it's dying except the revival of the Holy Spirit in our churches. How many know that? So how do we get revival in our churches? This scripture is the way we do it. This is the game plan on how God changes a culture. And you say, well, was it like that in every revival? Yes, it was. I can remember um, John Kilpatrick crying out for revival. In fact, he would sit in a prayer room and he would just cry out to God and he would cry out to God and he'd cry out to God. And finally he just said, God... I just don't care anymore. He said, if this isn't where your spirit is going to move, move me somewhere else. He said, move me to a church that has nobody. I don't care. Move me somewhere where your spirit is going to move. I have to have revival and I won't leave until I have it. I remember the revivals of Argentina. It said there was a small group that would pray and they would pray and they would pray and they said they would cry so much for revival that it was almost like streams would flow from their eyes. They cried so much for revival. Why are they crying for revival? Because they know that there's nothing we can do when the spirit of wickedness is in a nation and it has to be broken by intercession and prayer. We have to begin to pray for revival, church. How many many understand what I'm saying? We have to break this spirit in this nation. We have to cry out... To God, we have to intercede. So it says, if my people who are called by my name, that's the first part of this, 
And some people will sit and argue and they will say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't apply to us. It applies only to Israel. It's covenant language and this and that. But the book says, if my people who are called by my name. So God starts at the level of people. He didn't say if you could call the leaders together and if everybody could unite and the whole nation could hold hands and if everybody can agree, then... I will hear from heaven. No, he says, if my people who are called by my name. That means us. In fact, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. In fact, Solomon is standing at this place that God's Spirit is going to fill the house His name is going to be on it. He's actually standing there with his hands raised and he's saying, God, I dedicate this place to you that's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? That's what he's called us to do. God's called us to stand there with our hands open. He was standing on the altar of sacrifice. They just sacrificed so many thousands of animals on that side and he dedicated the Lord. The fire came down. The fire burnt it. It consumed it. There was nothing left of those sacrifices because it was all consumed. And God is calling us to be consumed by Him. God's calling us to stand on the altar of sacrifice. God's calling us to raise our hands open and say, God, consume all of me. Consume all of me, Lord God. Because when God consumes all of you, it's a sweet savor to Him. He sees you willing to lay your life down just like your Master did and saying, God, completely consume me, Lord, change me. And so that's the first step is God's people, those who are called according to His name, saying, less of me, Lord, more of you. And what are we doing, church? We're going out there saying, more of me. I know everything that's going on right now. I know everything you think. I know everything you believe. I know all the ideas. I know all the answers. I have all the rebuttals. I have all the answers to all the questions that are troubling the world. Well, why haven't you changed the world yet then? If that's working so well on Facebook, then why is the world not changing? I wish this read different. I wish it was if it said... If my people who are called by my name have really good rebuttals, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll change the world. If my people cleverly post things or are really good at memes, I'll hear from heaven and I'll change the world. If my people look smarter than everybody that's around them, and look like they have all the answers, and look really confident, then I'll hear from heaven, and I'll answer their prayer. And I'm being facetious, but that's not what he tells us to do. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Boy, and this is the first one. What's standing in between us? And God healing our land is our pride. Because our pride is just killing us. 
You say, well, Chad, if we could all just be like you. My pride is killing me. Your pride is killing you. Every time the world looks for an answer, what do they see? Our pride, our confidence, our wonderful words of wisdom, and what's God telling us to do? Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And you say, well, how does God humble us? Through prayer and fasting. God is calling us to pray and fast and humble. Why? I can tell you this, whenever I don't pray, it's because I have my own ideals that I think will work. How many know that to be true? As long as I've got a plan that might work, why pray? But when all my plans fail, what do I do? Well, I guess I can just pray now. All i got left is prayer. Only thing I have left to do is pray. Well, I guess the only thing we can do is pray now. Right? God's saying, no, that's all you had before. Now that every bridge has been burned, will you please pray? And it's because we're so proud and we think we can accomplish everything through our strength. So we go eat a nice meal and we say, okay, now I'm strong, God. Tell me what to do. And God says, get weak. Be less strong in yourself. Be less strong in your wisdom. Be less strong in your words. And count on a God who will bring revival and He'll do it the way He wants to, not the way you want to. And so that's why God says the only way is to humble yourself in prayer and fasting and we'll see God change the world around us. You say, well, I don't think that'll work. Have you ever tried it? Because what you're doing isn't working. God's saying if we'll humble ourselves, if we'll get rid of our ideals, if we'll get rid of our desire to be right, how many have a strong desire to be right? Man, what is that like when that burns? Man, I don't know. I want to know. You say, well, Chad, you're wrong. It's because you want to be right. <laughs> but church, how many you know that God wants us to burn that? Desire to be right all the time. Fasting and prayer can burn that up. How many hate that in you? How many hate that in you? Someone like, I'm not giving it up. Don't ask me to raise my hand. Do you know that your desire to be right is really negatively affecting the world around you? How many hate that in you? Desire to be right all the time. God wants to make us so humble that somehow in me and in you, that can be gone. How many think that's affecting relationships? How many totally think that's like a big deal? My desire to be right and my pride always gets me in trouble. How many can say that? See, God wants to burn that. And if spending time in a prayer room will do that, then it's totally worth it. God wants to take away all of our ideas. He wants to completely empty out everything in us that's not of Him. And, you, and, and we're like a person who is a... You ever had, seen a hoarder on TV? And you start to say, hey, let's throw this out. Well, I might be able to use that one day. Well, hey, I might be able to use that. That, that, could, that could be really useful. 
Yeah, I don't want to throw that out. That's very useful. And sometimes that's what we are spiritually. Because God only fills those who are empty. So how will we ever know what God has for us if we're still full of junk? If we still want to be right, then how can we ever receive true rightness from God? If we're self-righteous, how can we ever receive His righteousness? If He's got gifts of supernatural wisdom, how can I ever receive it when I'm only using my wisdom? If He has supernatural knowledge, how can I ever have that if I've still got my knowledge? You know, Paul said knowledge puffs up. God wants to give us true knowledge that doesn't puff up but makes us more humble. But how can we ever be full as long as the old is still there? And God wants to empty us through prayer and fasting. You say, but Chad, I know so much already. I know so much that, man, we would have a major revival if I were only the pastor of this church. And it, it sounds funny, but it's, it, it's how a lot of us operate. And can I tell you, I am actually the pastor here of the church. And if I've got an idea how revival is going to happen, it's, it, it, it's going to mess this church up so bad. And as the pastor, I've got to empty myself out because I've got a lot of ideas. I've got a lot of things in me that aren't worth anything. And you do too. And God wants to empty us out. He wants to humble us. He wants to take everything in us that we know and just get rid of it. And He's saying, and He wants us to cry out, fill me fresh, Lord. Fill me fresh. Fill me with You. Fill me with only You. I want You. Every other thing has failed, Lord. Everything else has failed. In church, we can either do it His way or we continue to watch our family, our children, our friends, our nation, completely go astray and be lost forever. Or we can begin to cry out and say, God, we don't have it. Lord, I humble myself. I'm one who is called by Your name and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. Lord, I need Your presence today. Lord, we need Your revival. Lord, we need You to change our nation. Church, if we don't get on our knees and begin to cry out to God, do you know that our kids may never see the revivals that we've seen? They'll never experience those moments of revival that we've seen unless people today begin to cry out again like they did back then. So it will humble ourselves. The removal of pride is the beginning of healing our land. Then he says, pray. If my people are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face. This is an unusual term. We know what pray is. That means communicate with the Lord. But it doesn't just say pray. It says pray and seek my face. And this is really unusual. Why would God say not to just pray, but to seek His face? And many times in scriptures, he talks about the seeking of his face. Psalm 105, verse 4, it says, Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face or presence always and continually. Many times in scripture, 
They're encouraged to seek his face. You know, a lot of times when you pray, you can pray to the Lord, but you cannot know his face. And the face does a lot of things. In fact, if you've um, seen somebody, and let's say they have a mask on and they're in the middle of a grocery store, I'm not positive who that person is until I see their face. Like, I think that's so-and-so, but I'm not sure that's them. And as long as God has a mask, as long as we can't see his face, we don't really know if that's God or not. And so a lot of our Christian life is lived questioning, is it God or is it not? I don't exactly know, did I hear from the Lord or did I not hear from the Lord? And there's a certain intimacy when I can see his face. And I can know it's him, and I can know who he is. And like the Bible says, I know the voice of the shepherd, and they hear his voice. And there's something about, uh, for instance, when you're on Facebook, and you're exchanging comments on social media, you know, whatever social media it is, you're exchanging comments. And there's something about not seeing their face that causes the conversation to be misinterpreted. Like, I can't see that they're typing that and they're smiling and joking. So how many arguments have there been because you couldn't see the face? And the way they say it, the way they do it, or who they are. In fact, how many know that uh, you can hear, you can have an employer... And everybody in the facility could say, man, that, that guy is mean. He just doesn't look nice. He's very stern. Um, he's always angry. But you've actually been in his office, and he's a friend of yours, and you always talk to him face to face. And everybody says, no, you've got him totally mischaracterized. He's actually like got a really good sense of humor. He actually is a very loving person. He cares about families. And how many know God is constantly misinterpreted because we don't see his face? And so the enemy is a master of making God be misinterpreted. In fact, in this scripture, we've been told that the God of the Old Testament is mean and angry and harsh and doesn't love anybody. And people will say that and get away with it. But the God here in Chronicles in the Old Testament says, hey, I want you to know my face. I want to bless you. I want you to, uh, I want to live with you. I want to live among you. I want my presence to dwell with you. And he's actually saying, no, I actually want to walk with you. I want to know you. I want you to know my face. Um, in fact, he goes even further and he talks about how he wants to shine upon people's faces. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who's not trust in Idols or swear by false gods, they will receive blessings from the Lord. Vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek His face, the God of Jacob. Numbers 6.25, may the Lord smile at you and be gracious to you. Psalm 83, restore us, O God, let your face shine again that we may be saved. Down a few in verse 7, it says, restore us, God of hosts. Shine upon us your face. 
that we may be saved. Down in 19, restore us, God, Lord of hosts. Let your face shine again that we may be saved. How many of you know when you know His face and He shines upon you and He smiles? When you know His favor, when you know His love, when you know His kindness, when you know His patience, God is saying, I don't want you to just pray. I want you to know my face. And church, at what point are Christians even taking the time to know His face? To seek His face. To seek His reactions. To seek His expressions. To seek His personality. To seek who He is as our loving Father that loves us more than anybody. If we're not taking the time to know His face, then how is He going to heal our land? So number one is we've got to get rid of our pride that says we don't need Him. Right? Number two, we've got to know Him so well that we actually see His face. In fact, when you walk into the tabernacle, there was a little table there called the table of His presence. And it was all about, hey, sit down, eat bread with me, and get to know me. And so God wants us to take time. And I'm just going to... I'm just going to tell you this right now. I, I don't even know how I'm going to accomplish it, but I just feel led to do it. Um, I've been, since this prayer room opened, I've been spending lots of time in there to the point that I just, I, I love it. And I knew I would love it because the first thing God told me when I walked in here was that's where the prayer room will be. And it didn't look like a prayer room at that time. But God was telling me, hey, it's going to be here to the point that I don't know if you've noticed my messages that I got frustrated when it wasn't. I was like, God, you told me right there. And I've been spending time in there. You know why I'm spending time in there? Because I love Him. And I want to spend time in His presence. And I want to know Him. And get this, I want Him to rub off on me. You know, I need God to change me and transform me and make me more like Him. And there are some days I can't get in there. Some days something happens in the schedule. I don't, you know, went out of town for a few days. I wasn't in there. Man, when I got back... Oh, man, I couldn't wait to get in there. Man, I was thinking to myself, I've really struggled because I haven't been in His presence like I've been in His presence. And You say, well, what are you doing there, Chad? I just adore Him. I just love Him. I tell Him how much I love Him. I open my ears up. I quit talking. And I just love on God. I tell Him how much I love Him. And I spend time with Him. And I say, God, You can talk to me. You know, speak to me. I cast, in fact, uh uh, Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and cast your anxieties on Him. You know what it feels like to care Him for yourself? It's heavy. But when you have a place where you can just cast it, throw my anxieties on Him and forget about them. And so church, what I'm going to do, I'm going to, starting tomorrow, I just feel like we need to start praying and fasting. And so I'm going to open this up at 4 o'clock. Anybody wants to come in here with me and just love on the Lord, get in His presence, seek His face, cry out to Him, cast out your anxieties on Him, I'm going to be here. And all I'm going to do is turn on worship music and just worship Him, love Him, care about Him, be in His presence, do what He wanted to do with us in the very beginning. Spend time with the Lord. And church, it says, My people who are called by my name, humble yourself. Meaning, know that you need God or we're not going to make it. 
and then seek his face. Pray and seek his face. Go after him with all of your heart. Go after knowing him and knowing his face. And then it says, Turn from your wicked ways. Oh, wow, Chad, this is uh, not biblical, some people would say. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace, right? He saved us to remove sin, not just cover it. And salvation isn't by works, but changing the world and being in His presence means turning from my wicked ways. So you say, well, what else are you doing in His presence? And a big part of it is God's people need to turn from their wicked ways. Every revival that's ever happened was people saying, God, I'm sorry. God, I repent. God, this is not pleasing to you. And everything in our life that's not pleasing to God, how many know God just says, hey, if you will turn from your wicked way, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive you and I will heal your land. And church, it's time that we start laying on that altar and let it burning to nothing all of the wickedness that's in our lives. You say, well, preach that to the world. No, he's calling on his people to lay on an altar everything that is wicked, and you know that's not right with the Lord. God's calling us to get in his presence and just put an end to it. Say, God, I give this to you. I repent. I confess. I turn around. I turn from my wicked ways. And every revival we've ever seen, there was this sanctification this righteousness that was preached, this desire to give up the wickedness of the world and exchange it for the righteousness of God. And church, God is calling us into days of repentance. God wants to get rid of the pride, meaning, God, I need you really badly. My family needs you really badly. My country needs you really badly. God's calling us to seek His face. God's calling us to turn from our wickedness And then he says, I will hear from heaven. I will now hear from heaven. You say, well, doesn't God just listen to everybody? He wouldn't have to qualify that with, now I will hear from heaven if he hears everybody. It's a fact in the Bible that God doesn't hear every prayer. He attends his ear to the righteous but he doesn't listen to the other prayers. God has a recipe for the prayers that I hear, and there are many places in the Bible God says, I will not hear your prayer. And church, how many know we need God to incline his ear to our prayers? Hallelujah. When God does, how many get the sense in that scripture that God really wants to answer our prayers? Like, I really want to answer your prayers. These obstacles are holding me back. Let's get rid of the obstacles because I want to do great things in your nation. I want to do great things in your church. I want to do great things in your life. Just get rid of these obstacles because I want to bless you. It says, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. How many believe that we need healing in this land? You say, well, what will God do? 
Just imagine, just remember the story I told earlier, an 80 year old woman laying in her bed seeking God for revival and over 400 people in her church. I don't know how many were in the church, but it was a dead church. Over 400 people got saved and there was revival in that dead church because one woman was crying out to God for revival. Church, what can God do in this church? What can God do in your family? And what can you do without God? Nothing. Stand to our feet. Like I said, I feel a call from God to begin to seek His face. And I especially feel a call of God in the next, between now and the election. Amen? How many feel a call of God to go deeper than we've ever gone? How many feel like we need to pray for our president? How many feel like we need to pray for our nation? How many believe that this is a time of prayer that we need to dedicate ourselves to fasting and prayer, to seeking God like we never have? So I don't know how I'm going to do it, but four to six every day I'm going to open that prayer room up, and it may just be me in there. That's okay. He didn't tell me how many people I had to have. He just said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And you say, well, man, I can't be here. Find a time to in your home, get in the presence of God and just love Him. Praise Him, worship Him. Get in His presence saying, God, now more than ever, Lord, I need Your Spirit. I need Your Spirit of revival in my church and in my home and in my nation. And let's begin to pray because you know what? This morning, I'm not the only one God is speaking this to. I mean, know there are little churches all across the country that God is giving the same cry to. Because God doesn't just speak to me. He speaks to godly men and women all across this country that now is the time to begin to cry out. Now is the time. The ones that hear His voice, the ones that have a shepherd, uh, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the shepherd, the ones that hear His voice are going to begin to cry out now. Church, our nation needs it like never before. And I'm calling out to everybody who's willing. And you say, well, how many will do it? Probably just a remnant. But that remnant will change this church. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray right now, Lord God. Father, I sense the heaviness of the spirit of this age, Lord. Lord, a demonic presence that hangs over the cities, Lord God. A demonic presence that hangs over this nation, Lord God. But we know that you are the breaker of every stronghold, Lord. Lord, I pray for a spirit of revival, Lord God, in my life. spirit of revival in this church. A spirit of revival in this nation, Lord God. Father, I pray for a great revival, Lord God. Lord, that would go across denominational lines. Lord, it would go across theological disagreements, Lord God. Father, it would go across uh, every race, Lord God. Father, a mighty revival in this nation, Lord God. We cry out for our president, Lord God. Father, I pray that you would strengthen him with godly wisdom. Oh, that you would protect him, Lord God. From the onslaught from the enemy, Lord God, I pray that you would protect our leaders, Lord God, Democrat and Republican, Lord. I pray that your spirit would fall upon this nation, Lord God. 
Father, that there would be a spirit of unity, Lord God, that the spirit of chaos, Lord God, the spirit of disagreement, of disunity would be broken in this nation, Lord. Father, we're committing ourselves to prayer, Lord God. Father, there's no other way, Lord God, there's no other way, Lord, in this nation than prayer, Lord God. Father, we commit ourselves as a church to cry out to you, Lord. Oh, hallelujah. We cry out, Lord God. We repent, Lord God. We repent repent of our wickedness, Lord. Lord, we repent of our laziness, Lord God. We repent of our selfishness, Lord God, our lack of humility. Oh, Lord, right now, break us, Lord. Oh, begin to break this church, Lord God. Oh, we cry out, Lord God. Do a mighty work, Lord. Hallelujah. Church, just find a place to pray. We've got to get back to our roots, church. We've got to get back to praying for revival. We've got to get back to crying out to God. Hallelujah. Find a place to pray. Jesus. Yes. 